Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12, and I will read through verse 27. For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit are, are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot shall say, because I am not the hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I am not the eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? And now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. You may be seated. Good morning, greetings in Christ's name this morning. Since the beginning of time, us as humans have had a longing for companionship, acceptance from others, a place to belong to. This is one of the reasons why God created Eve. He said that it is not good that man should be alone. When infants and children are left alone, when there is no one that cares about them, and that expresses love to them, it can have a negative impact in their life. While there may be people that choose to live an isolated life, there is still a void in their life that is empty because of no interaction with other people. I believe the age that we live in, with the technology that we hold in our hand, namely the smartphone, that has fought against companionship brotherhood in the church, that feeling of being connected to other people if we use our phones in the wrong way. Today, we can watch videos and movies all by ourselves. We can watch whatever I want to watch, whereas a decade, a decade ago, it was a group effort where everyone sat in front of a screen and watched it together. Or today, 
We can listen to music with our earbuds all by ourselves, with whatever music that we want to listen to. Whereas a decade ago, you put a CD into the stereo, and those that were within earshot of the music that you were listening to were part of the experience of the music that you were listening to. Today, you can read, you can look at whatever you want to with your phone. Well, there was a time where people could see what you're reading or what you're looking at because of the book or magazine that you're holding in your hand. This morning, I will be preaching my assigned topic for the circuit preaching, um, which is brotherhood in the church. We will be looking at what does it mean to relate to one another? What is my part in the church? And what are some of the privileges and responsibilities in being part of the church? Ask, I'm going to ask a question. What is the church exactly? And I know I preached um, from Matthew 16 a couple weeks ago or months ago. Uh, but Jesus said in Matthew 16 that he, is, that he will build his church. Those who confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, are a part of that church. The greater church, the universal church, are all those that confess that Jesus is the Messiah. It is all those who will be gathered around the throne in Revelation 4 and 5, worshiping God and the Lamb on the throne. I think there are some things in life that gives a picture of this greater church, the universal church. The one picture that we see, it starts in the home, our families. While there are some families that have their last name as Peachy, there is set aside one family that belongs to me and my wife and my children. And the same is true for the other Peachy households. My children know whose family they are a part of because of who their parents are and also because of who their siblings are. The way that our home life is like is most likely how we will view the church and how we, re we will relate in the church. If there's anger and unsubmissive spirit, if there's con a controlling spirit or an uncommitted spirit or an attitude that I am the center of my home, where everything re revolves around me, it will show itself in the church by your life there. Or if in your home there is love for one another, there is a servant's heart, there is a submissive heart, where Christ is the center of your home, that also will show itself in the church by your life there. Our homes reflect the universal church. Another picture that reflects a universal church is our local church, Weavertown Church here. And this is what I'll be mainly talking about today when I'm talking about the brotherhood in the church. It is in the local church where we find brotherhood. If that brotherhood is not found in our church. We need a revival in our church. I remember when there was someone giving a testimony when he was being received as a member of this church that he said that he now has a place to belong. There is a group of people that belong to him. 
I think that's an excellent response when we are joining the church. The invisible church is made up of people that come from different nationalities, different cultures, different backgrounds. There's a wide range of ages. I think that should be the same at our church. It should be made up of people from all age groups, made up of people that think differently than you, <clears throat> respond to a situation <clears throat> different than you. In other words, a church needs to have all kinds of personalities, all kinds of different giftings united together by the Holy Spirit. Church is not made up of people who are your best friends. I think it is such a blessing and is a beautiful picture when there's a wide variety of ages in the church. I'm going to look a little bit at the importance of church membership. There are many people that believe that church membership is not important. And the reason that I talked about our cell phones in the beginning is because it is totally the opposite from being a part of the church. There are many people who never go to church, but they watch church on their phones. They are watching whom they want to watch. They listen to the sermons that they want to watch or listen to. Going to, quote, church for them is all about themselves. To be a part of a church, we need to give ourselves for the church. We can't do that from the couch at our home. Thinking about the importance of church membership, there are a couple illustrations that I want to give that point um, about church membership. The first one is how well or how could how well could you play football or volleyball all by yourself? <clears throat> when there is a team, each position doing what they want, what they were meant to do, and the game is played the way that it is supposed to. The game is more enjoyable to play. Or another picture. How well does it sound when we all would sing one part, whether it's soprano, alto, or bass by itself? The singing sounds way better when each part, soprano, alto, tenor, bass, are blended together, contributing their different notes. It produces beautiful harmony. Or another picture that we see is when you're grilling in your backyard, how well could you cook your steak or hamburger with only one charcoal? <clears throat> you would not get the heat that you need to cook to get your steak or hamburger cooked. When there are many coals together, it produces enough heat. And that heat lasts a very long time so that you can cook your food. Or another picture, what about a building project? How would it go if there would be only one person building a house or a commercial building? The project would take a very long time for him to complete. It takes a team of people to do different parts of the construction project to build the house. While the Bible doesn't say 
that you should be a member of a church. It does imply that those who are born again, those who have been baptized and have the Holy Spirit within them, are part of the local church. May I remind you that the local church is a picture of the greater church, greater universal church. In the greater church, not everyone is a part of that church. You don't just join that church. There's requirements that need to be met, and that is believing in Jesus as the Messiah. The same is true for our church. Not just anyone joins our church. They, too, need to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. They need to be born again. And when they meet these requirements, they can be part of this church. When Paul wrote his letters, he wrote them to particular churches. For example, First and Second Corinthians were written to the church at Corinth. Galatians was written to the, all the churches in Galatia. Ephesians was written to the church at Ephesus. And John wrote letters to seven different churches in Revelation. Specific churches with certain people in those churches. Hebrews 13.17 would, would indicate that a particular group of people belong to a certain church. I'm going to read that verse. Obey them to have the rule over you. And submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. If you are not a part of a church, who is responsible for your soul? Who are you to obey and to submit yourself to? And the same is true for us as pastors. We need to know who we are to give an account for. Who are we responsible for? We as pastors would be overwhelmed if we are responsible for every Christian in the world with people that we don't even know. The Bible gives different imageries of what the church is like. Not only, I think, the greater church, but also the local church, our church. We as a church are branches receiving our growth from the vine or the stalk, which is Jesus. We as a church are as a family. We are brothers and sisters adopted into God's family with God being our father and Jesus as our brother, the firstborn. We as a church are like a flock with Jesus being our shepherd, the one who cares for us, who provides for us with food and water, the one who protects us. The pastors in the church are also considered as shepherds, those who care for the church, those who provide truth from Scripture for the growth of the church, and those who protect the church from the lies and false teaching that goes on in the world that would hurt and wound the church. Another picture is we as a church are like a building with Jesus as the cornerstone, giving us a strong foundation that no outside force can destroy or collapse, cause it to collapse. 
we as a church are like a human body with many different body parts and cells with Christ being the head of the body. And I think it is this illustration that I will be talking the most about today because it fits best with the topic that was assigned to me, I feel. We can see with these illustrations and the things we are talking about that, the, that church membership is something that is very important. You're a part of a group in order for it to function so that you can have eternal life. If you have your Bibles turned, I would invite you to turn them to 1 Corinthians 12, where um, Nate got done reading not so long ago. It is in this chapter that we can see how the church is supposed to function and relate to one another. And I think the devotions this morning um, kind of fit in with um, the sermon today. Psalm 67, I saw a lot of words about people and us, God shining his face on us. It's not individualism. It's us as a group. I appreciated that. First point that I want to point out um, here in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, is where we are one, being one. When we look at a person, we know them by their name. We can identify who that person is. If I say Joseph Peachy, you immediately think of the one who is preaching. You know in your mind, even if I wouldn't be standing here, you know who the person is. Or if I would say Nate Bang, you would think of Nate. Then the same is true for anyone else in this church. But if I would take my heart out, and I know this, yeah, and compare with someone else's heart, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between those hearts. You wouldn't be able to tell whose heart it is. Or if I would take someone else's or my hand and arm and compare it to someone else's hand and arm without you knowing who they belong to, seeing their face, you wouldn't know whose arm and hand it is. An average human body has approximately 30 trillion cells. All these cells work together in harmony so that the body can survive. <clears throat> All these cells, when they are formed together, it, cre it creates you or I. When a certain number of those cells are missing, it is more difficult to, ad to identify the person. The same is true for the church. When the world looks at the church, at Weavertown Church, who do they see? Do they see me? Do they see you? Do they see each individual person that attend here? Or do they see someone that feels like they need to be in control of this church or one who is superior than the others? Or do they see Christ? Who do they see? I'm going to read verse 12. For as a body is one, hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. There are many members here in this church. 
But when we are all working in harmony, doing the gift that God has given us, the world will see Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17. And if you, I invite you to turn to John 17 and read a couple verses there, 20 to 23. This is before Jesus went to the cross. Read verses 20 to 23 of John 17. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee. That they also may be one in us. That the Father may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. That they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Jesus' prayer for the church is that we may all be one, that we may all live in harmony with one another. What is the purpose of of us being one so that the world may believe that God sent Jesus. I believe this unity, this oneness that we have with each other and with Christ is our greatest evangelism tool that we can have. If we don't have unity and oneness, it destroys our witness. As we go into missions, I think it is very important that we go with the church supporting us. Otherwise, you're doing it on your own. You're doing it alone, and it doesn't show the world who Jesus is. Matthew 5.14 gives another beautiful picture of unity. It says that a city set on a hill cannot be hid. How many lights does it take to light up a city? There are many lights that light up a city. So it is with our church. When we allow God's light, the light of Christ, to shine in our, in our hearts, and we are one with those in the church, our little light becomes a bright light from the city that will not be hid. Did you get the message? In order for people to see Jesus, we need to be one. So what makes the church one? Was Jesus' prayer answered when he prayed that we may all be one? Was that answered? Yes, it was answered. I believe it was. What makes us one as a church is the Holy Spirit living within us. We can see that in verse 13. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. This happens when we are this happens when we are born again, when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit comes within us. Because we are vertically with God one and his son, 
through the Holy Spirit, we, can, we are automatically one with those in the church horizontally. We are unified together because of the Holy Spirit in our life. It is not because we all think the same or all act alike that we are one. We are one because of the Holy Spirit. I think it is neat and good how when we declare to the church that we have committed ourselves to follow Jesus and are baptized, we are then considered a member of the church body here. We are one with all the church members in that church or in this church. So what does it mean that we are all one? What does that look like? I read the end of verse 13. Um, It shows us what it looks like. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. To be one in Christ has the idea that there is no one better than the other. We are all sinners saved by grace. The Jews were not better than the Gentiles. They were both equal at the foot of the cross. The same idea applies to the slaves and those who were free in the church. They were all equal at the foot of the cross. There was no one better than the other. And that's the same for us. There's no one better. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. We are all the same. Romans 12, 3, it says, For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Don't think more highly than others, but to think soberly. It is God who blesses, and not because we earned it. And like I said, in the beginning of chapter 12, it talks about the different gifts that God has given to each believer. And because of the gifts that we received, we are not better than another. We are one. We are complete with what God has given to each person. At the cross, we are all equal. We are sinners saved by grace. When we are one, we believe in one God, one Savior of the world, which is Jesus, which is Jesus, and we have one faith. What we what we believe is truth from the scriptures. So what is our symbol? Or what is the symbol that we are one together as a church and with Christ? Turn to 1 Corinthians 10, um, just one page over, 16 to 17. I believe this is a symbol of our unity or of our oneness with Christ and with each other. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of one of that one bread. The word communion in the Greek is the word koinonia, which means fellowship, um, community, joint participation. And the word fellowship, I really like that word, has the idea of sharing, sharing with one another. When we partake 
at the Lord's table, we profess ourselves as his guests and covenant people. And when we participate at the Lord's Supper, it, re it represents a unified body that is dependent on the death of Christ. The phrase, for we being many, are one bread and one body, refers to the individual members who make up one corporate body, the church. <clears throat> so we can ask the question, are there things that disrupt this oneness that we have with each other in Christ? And while you don't necessarily see it here in 1 Corinthians 12, there is things that disrupt the oneness that we have with each other in Christ. Sin breaks the unity that we have with one another. Sin has an effect on not just the person committing the sin, but on the whole church. I had mentioned in the beginning that us as humans long for companionship and being connected with other people. But when we sin, the exact opposite happens. We want to hide in the darkness so no one knows our failures. Remember what happened to the children of Israel? Um, let me read a couple of verses from Joshua 7 where it talks about um, Achan's sin. Uh, we remember how Achan took um, a Babylonian garment and 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold after um, they were, the children of Israel were not told to take anything from um, Jericho. But then the next day, or you know, sometime later, the children of Israel went up to fight against um, Ai, which was an easy victory for them. But they were defeated. And I just want to look at the reaction of God um, after that time when they were defeated. Uh, you see that in chapter 7 of Joshua, verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass in the accursed thing, and the end of that in the end of that verse, and it says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel. <clears throat> One man's sin brought disgrace to the whole entire group. God wasn't angry at just Ai, but he was angry at the whole group. Um, in verses 10 to 15, when God was speaking to Joshua, not once does God speak or refer to only one man's sin. But it was that Israel had sinned. It was a whole group. Sin affects the whole group. And Joshua, when he heard about the sin, he was serious about taking care, taking care of the sin within them. He didn't wait for a couple of days. And he didn't ask for a prayer meeting first. And in saying that, I'm not saying that it's important to pray. We need to pray. I'm stressing, out the, I'm stressing the urgency of the matter. Or he didn't ask for wisdom from others. He rose up early the next morning to take care of the sin within the group. It was serious business to take care of it right away so that it doesn't affect the group anymore. <clears throat> when we as an individual see that there is sin in the church, we are responsible to help that brother see the sin in his life. And we see Matthew 18, 15, and 17. I'm going to read that. The steps that are taken um, to take care of the sin. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. 
But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. So we can see the different steps that is needed to take in order to treat sin in the church. When you and I sin and it's not taken care of by confession, it will affect our church. It will prevent growth. And it will continue to, un- to affect us until it is dealt with. Let's look at the commitment to the body back in 1 Corinthians 12. And we see that in verses 15 to 20. When we think of the word commitment, it is a word that is maybe not very popular today. People are afraid to commit themselves to anything or to anyone. When we, when we do commit ourselves to something, it exposes our weaknesses and our failures. Many times there are people who jump around from church to church, trying to find the perfect church, trying to find a church that pleases them, where they feel like they are getting what they want. They, are, they aren't committed. When we are committed to a church, we come to church to share with others to give of ourselves to others. Even today, did you come to church to bless others or did you come to church to receive a blessing? Which one? Commitment requires giving ourselves for the sake of others. God has given us all different gifts so that it helps the body to be unified, so that it helps us as a church to be one. Just because we aren't assigned as a particular role in the church that we want to do doesn't mean that we should jump to the next church. If all of us is the eye of the body, like it says in verse 7, then what about the rest of the body? Are we even a body if we are all doing the same things in the church? A body in the church, just like the human body, requires many different people to do many different functions within the church. God has made each one of us different. Our personalities, the way that we think, He's given us gifts for the sake of the church to create unity and oneness. And I like the verse in Acts 2.42, and this is speaking about the 3,000 souls that were added to the church the first day that the church began. And it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. I think this verse speaks of commitment and dedication to the church. The words, they they continued steadfastly. They were they, they were committed to the church. They continued steadfastly. Do we have that kind of commitment in our church today? Are we continued steadfastly to Weavertown Church? Is that our commitment, our desire? <clears throat> These people came to church giving of themselves to the church. They gave themselves, they gave themselves to the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. 
They were doing the symbol of their unity, communion. They gave of themselves to pray. Just to remind us, our church here at Weavertown is a picture of the universal church. We will one day live in eternity in heaven. If we are all Christians, we will all be together forever in heaven. How exciting is that? That is something that is very exciting, right? But do we have that same excitement when we come to church every Sunday morning and we meet the same people that we have been part of for the last year or five years or the last 10 years? It can be very easy for us to go to, like, say, the minister's meetings or to CBS or to some other kind of big spiritual event and be all excited about being there but then have a critical spirit of our home church. We don't get excited about gathering with the people that are there. Is that the right attitude to have? We can ask a question, who is the one designing this church? Who is the one placing the members within the church, giving them the gifts that they have? Is it you or is it God? That is a serious question that we need to ask ourselves and rightly answer. There's a saying that I'm sure you have heard before, and I hope it isn't true of us, but the saying goes, to dwell in love with saints above, well, that will be glory. But to dwell with saints I know below, why, that's a different story. Our desire um, as we do our gifts in the church is to please the Lord. Are we striving to please God within the church? And give of yourself to this church. Do in the church what God has designed you to do to bring unity, to help bring unity in the church. When we do that, when we do what we are called to do, it pleases Him, like it says in verse 18. The next point that I want to look at, um, verses 21 to 23, is accepting all that are in the body or those that are in the church. As a church, there needs to be humility toward one another. There is no one that is more important than another. We need to have love toward one another, not just a surface love for each other. Maybe like your Facebook friends that I know who are, who you are so that, therefore, you're my friend. But we need to have a deep love for one another, the type of love that would die for our brother. When we have that kind of love, we can then accept those who are in the church, no matter what their personality is like or what their gift is in the church. When we love like that, we will feel that all the members, with whatever gift they serve the church with, is very important. What are the feeble and the less honorable parts of the body that it talks about here? What are the feeble parts of my body, of your body? The heart, the lungs, the liver, the kidneys, and the stomach. If these parts are damaged in any way, it affects the body. These parts are hidden inside our bodies. They aren't noticeable, but they are very important. What is something special about these parts? 
These organs are protected by other parts of the body. There is the skin, and there is the flesh, and the ribcage that surround these organs, protecting them. Isn't that the same in the church body, in this church? There may be some that are feeble, that are discouraged, that are new in the faith. It is very important that we surround them, that we protect them from the outside elements of the church that would harm them. Their presence in the church is still very important. Their gift that they contribute to the church is valuable and indispensable. What are ways that we can do this? I think as we look at the people in, the, in our church, do we know what their needs are? Or do we know what they're rejoicing about? And that involves being involved in your local church. As a church member, we need to be involved in the church and in people's lives. We need to weep with them. We need to help them carry their load. We need to rejoice with them. We as a family definitely felt that a couple months ago when our daughter was in the hospital. How you walked beside us and prayed with us when we didn't know how to pray anymore. And we were so grateful for that. Throughout the Bible, there are different things that we are commanded to do for one another. And I will go through some of them. And I think these one another's can pertain to the people in this church, or should pertain to the people in this church. We are to love one another, the love that I described early, in agape love. We are to comfort one another with the words from Scripture. We are to exhort one another daily. This is not something that happens, you know, once a week, but daily. We are to do it every day. Are we doing that? That's a challenge for me. We are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Do you have warm acceptance to all those in the church? Or is there people that you hold at arm's length? We are to consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. We need to encourage. We need to stir up other people to love and to do good, and to good, do good works to others. We need to edify one another. We are promoting growth. We are encouraging growth in another person's life in the church. We need to admonish one another. We are to warn one another. These are ways we can help other people. When we do these things, when we, when we accept one another with the way that they serve the church and with the gift that God has given them, there will be less of a chance for division to take place in the church or so that it won't be torn in two. <clears throat> There's a story that I heard from David Jeremiah that speaks about how we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in the church. And it spoke to me a great deal. And I want to read it. In Brooklyn, New York, there's a school that caters to mildly learning disabled children. The father of one of these children spoke at a fundraising banquet for the school. And after extolling the school on his dedicated staff, he cried out in the midst of his speech, Where is the perfection of my son Shia? Everything God does is done in perfection, but my son can't understand things as other children do. My son cannot remember facts and figures as other children do. Where is God's perfection? The audience was shocked by this question and pained by the father's anguish. 
And after a period of silence, he gave the answer. He said, I believe that when God brings a child into this world, like my son, that the perfection that he seeks is in the way people react to him. Then he told this story about his son, Shia. He said, one afternoon, Shia and his dad walked past the park where some boys were playing baseball. Shia asked, do you think they'll let me play? And his father knew that his son was not at all athletic or coordinated. Most boys would not want him on their team. Still, his father understood that if his son was chosen to play, it would give him a sense of belonging. So Shia's dad approached one of the boys on the field and asked if Shia could play. The boy looked around for guidance from one of his teammates. Getting none, he took matters into his own hands, and he said, We were losing by six runs. The game is in the eighth inning. If he wants to be on our team, we'll try him up. We'll try to put him up to bat in the ninth. Shia was told to put on a glove and go out and play short center field. In the bottom of the eighth, Shia's team scored a few runs, but they were still behind by three. In the bottom of the ninth, Shia's team scored again, and now there was two outs, and the bases loaded, and the potential winning run on base, and Shia is up to bat. Would the team actually let Shia bat at this juncture and give away their chance to win the game? Surprisingly, Shia was given the bat, and everybody knew that it was impossible because he couldn't even hold the bat right, let alone swing it. However, as Shia stepped up to the plate, the pitcher moved a few steps closer to lob the ball in softly, so Shia could at least make contact. The first pitch came in, and Shia swung clumsily, and he missed. One of Shia's teammates came up to Shia, and together they held the bat, and they faced the pitcher, together waiting for the next pitch. The pitcher took a few steps closer and tossed the ball even more softly to Shia. As the pitch came in, Shia and his teammate swung the bat, and together they hit the slow ground ball to the pitcher. The pitcher picks the soft grounder up and could easily have thrown the ball to first, to first base. Shia would have been out, and that would have ended the game. But instead, he took the ball and he threw it on a high arc to right field, far above the reach of the first baseman. Everyone started yelling, Shia, run to first. Well, he never ran to first in his life. He scampered down the baseline, wide-eyed and startled. And by the time he reached first base, the right fielder had the ball. He could have thrown the ball to the second baseman, who would tag out Shia, who was still running. But instead, he threw the ball high and far over the third baseman's head. And everybody yelled, run to second, run to second. Shia ran toward second base. As the runners ahead deliriously circled the bases toward home. As Shia reached second base, the opposing shortstop ran to him and turned him in the direction of third base and shouted, Run to third! Run to third! As Shia rounded third, the boys from both teams ran behind him screaming, Shia, run to home! Run to home! Shia ran home, stepped on home plate, and all 18 boys lifted him up on their shoulders, making him the hero because he had just hit a grand slam and he won the game for the team. 
That day, said his father, tears now rolling down his face, that day, for one moment, those 18 boys reached their level of God's perfection. This story is a beautiful picture of how we ought to relate to one another here in the church. Are we helping each other to succeed way above ourselves? Are we doing our part in causing the church to grow, to be one with one another and one with God? Or have we allowed sin to enter into our church? Or do we criticize each other, tear each other down? Are we trying to make this my church? Or do we recognize that this church belongs to God? My prayer for my own life and also for this church is that we can be united by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Also that God would be pleased at the way that we function within the church. Let's kneel to pray.